I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very lucky to be joined on the line now by Uma Valetti, who's the CEO and co-founder at Memphis Meets. Uma, thanks for joining us. Carl, it's a pleasure to join you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure as well. And the first thing I want to do is point our listeners to your to your domain, to your website, memphismeets.com. Uh, Uma, give us the elevator pitch for Memphis Meets. Sure. So at Memphis Meats, we are developing a new way to produce delicious and tasty meat that we've always enjoyed by growing it directly from animal cells. So instead of growing a full animal without the need to feed, breed, and slaughter actual animals, we are taking these high-quality cells from, let's say, a high-quality beef cattle and growing it into, into meat. So we've made products like burgers, hot dogs, sausages from various types of animals. And uh, we are looking at this as an incredible business opportunity to really bring meat to the table in a sustainable way with also improving the health and also making it better for us, the animals and the planet. So that's our elevator pitch. Great. It's it sounds like a like science fiction. So it's pretty exciting. And it, you know, I always tell people that innovation is a, is about making a new match between a solution and a need. So let's start with the need. Talk a little bit about the problems with the current meat production system. Sure. So meat is a product that all of us have grown up loving. It's delicious. There's lots of benefits. And it's an important part of almost every culture in the world. In fact, 90% of the world's population eats meat. And any culture, any religion, any region, the majority of the people eat meat. And even if you think of India, which is known as the largest vegetarian population, 70% of people in India eat meat. So it's very clear that people love meat. Now, the population is growing to 9 billion in the next 30 years. And the one thing that has not really changed for the better is how we make meat. And producing meat in the way we've been doing it in the last 50, 100 years is long overdue for innovation, specifically because of the immense problems in terms of raising these animals. You know, for example, just 57 billion land animals are slaughtered every year, and they have to be raised, they have to be fed, they have to be bred, and then there's a tremendous amount of waste that comes off from these animals. And the process of slaughter itself brings in lots of health risks, which is essentially the bacteria from the gut of the animal contaminating the meat. And we hear about the E. coli uh, food poisoning, or we hear about the avian flu. And, and lastly, and this is the most important thing for entrepreneurs and those looking for key business opportunities, it's extremely inefficient produce, to produce meat the way we do. For example, um, it takes about 23 calories of grain to make one calorie of beef. And that, if you think about it, is an extreme down conversion of energy. I mean, there is no industry in the world that is supported when they're converting calories from 23 to one calorie without the immense subsidies or you know, tax breaks or something of that nature supporting the industry. So we see that as a tremendous problem, uh, but the demand on the other side has continued to grow, and in fact, it's projected to double in the next 30 years. So therein lies the very large opportunity. 
It's it's so interesting. So you gave, I think, I would I counted three basic dimensions to the problem. One is there are some people certainly who have an ethical issue with 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 our our meat production system. There's an environmental question which is related certainly to the efficiency figures you cited and then there's a health dimension as well what to what extent do you, is the market and i guess by that i mean let me just rephrase is to what extent is the end consumer aware of these of these needs of these problems in the existing system i think that's a very good question and the answer varies depending on where you are in the world and to the large extent people in the us um, they are getting more and more aware of the health, number one, followed by the environment. Um, the ethical issue, I think, has been uh, a constant feature across many cultures in the world, including the U.S., um, and it's bubbling up to the surface more and more, uh, but it's always been at the background. But I think the drivers for change have been predominantly when people have realized the extreme um, cruelty or inhumanity uh, in raising these animals in confined, confined animal uh, feeding operations called CAFOs. I think that's been more a phenomenon on the West. If we think about countries like India and China, the biggest concern come from food safety is the meat that they're eating safe. Mm-hmm. So I think it depends on the place in the world you know, any of us are. Yeah, and I suppose, as you mentioned food safety, I'm thinking about places like the UK, where there is at least a perceived risk of mad cow disease and other meat-borne diseases. Is, would your approach mitigate those concerns as well? Well, I think we have a very significant uh, advantage when we talk about diseases originating in animals that are breed, bred in confined areas, mm-hmm. uh, because we don't have a, a herd of millions of animals or even thousands of animals in a small you know, confined area. Um, we kind of feel like we completely sidestep that problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and and because the entire production process and the way we have modeled it out is very traceable. For example, there is no way that any of us would know what the the steak on our plate uh, came from. Like in, in, in other words, the animal likely lived for 12 to 24 months. And what did it eat every single day when it was mm-hmm. grazing or was being fed? There's no way to trace that. Whereas for our product, we're taking the same cells from animal muscle, and when we're growing them, we're feeding them with nutrients that are very traceable. And it's a much more shorter process with very few points of failure. And therefore, we feel like in terms of health, the biggest thing we're doing is we're detaching slaughter from meat production. Yep. And I think that's where the, the, the significant difference from from current meat production and how we are proposing it should be in the future is different. Yeah. All right. Well, let's turn to the science a little bit, and maybe you can educate me a little bit. If we think about, at a macro level, what meat is, it's, of course, muscle tissue uh, with some fat, typically, as well. And and I think of that as the macro structure, but at the what is it at the micro level, and how do you actually grow it or create it? Sure. Yeah. So um, if you think about uh, a steak on your plate, it's probably a billion cells all put together. Mm-hmm. And these cells at some point started off from one cell in an animal's body, and it, they were fed nutrients that came through the bloodstream, and those cells kept growing, multiplying. And 
Essentially, what we've done is we've abstracted the animal out of the process. We take cells from, let's say, a, a top sirloin from a beef cattle. We take the cells and we identify some of the cells that are in there that have the capability to self-renew themselves. So these are already cells that people are uh, eating. They are, they are already there in the steak, but they have the ability to renew themselves and become muscle tissue. So we identify these cells. We place them in a very clean production environment where they're fed with what cells typically need to grow, like um, amino acids, sugars, oxygen, uh, minerals, vitamins, and different temperature conditions. And these cells continue to grow, and all they can become is tissue, like muscle tissue. And we let them grow for a period of time, and depending on the product we want to formulate, um, we, can, we can harvest them early for having a more of a tender mouthfeel or a tender texture, or we can harvest them at a different time point if we wanted it to be much more texturized. Mm-hmm. And essentially when we harvest them, um, we kind of, at this stage, we are wor- uh, working with our first version of products, like I talked about, you know, Americans love hot dogs, meatballs, and sausages or burgers. We formulate them into the shape, and the rest of the cooking process is virtually identical to what yeah. someone would do by putting it on a grill or yeah. putting it on a pan. I want to I want to go back to the science a little bit, and you have to indulge my nerdy tendencies here. But the so this is like like in effect, it's a it's sort of a stem cell for muscle. Is that right? In other words, it's a cell that can replicate. Yes. itself and become more muscle. Yeah, I guess a stem cell can become any cell in the body, but so these aren't exactly like stem cells, but they're analogous. It's analogous to what it's like, right? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, these are cells that are present in the body of an animal. When mm-hmm. the animal needs its muscle tissue being repaired, these are the animal uh, cells that spring into action mm-hmm. and repair that muscle tissue. And do they, do they, what do you have to do, and maybe this is, I'm sure this is in the secret sauce, but what do you have to do to induce a cell to replicate? Well, the cell naturally wants to replicate. The cell in the right conditions, mm-hmm. it is, every cell in our body has been programmed at some point to grow, replicate, and become, you know, different type of cell or become larger. So we essentially, I think, are... Um, mirroring that process, but some of the secret sauce is really in how do you manipulate different conditions so that they become the highest quality muscle they can produce. And a lot of it is an efficiency of producing a high protein uh, content muscle cell or having the fat cells with the right um, mix of, let's say, omega-3, omega-6s that we really care for. So there is a fair amount of... um, intellectual property that is being developed in that area with, with discoveries of how does it work for beef cells versus pork cells versus mm-hmm. a different species. Mm-hmm. All right. Two more science questions. I won't promise to, but I got two more in the queue anyway. The, the <laughs> first first is an easy one. You mentioned fat cells. So you do fat cells as well as, as, muscles, as, as uh, muscle cells. Is that right? Yeah. So we do have a process that has both the cells, but mm-hmm. a lot of focus has been on the muscle because the you know meat is predominantly muscle right but fat has a significant feature of adding flavor and taste okay and the second question is it's easy for me to imagine a soup of cells that are replicating but as i think about meat i think of it having more of a fibrous texture are those fibers just uh, aggregations of lots of cells in a in a row 
and and how do you induce that kind of uh, uh, fiber development? Does that happen naturally when you when you grow cells? Um, so that's a very good question. It depends on what you're trying to make. If there is types of meats that have different types of texture, they have different types of architecture from a microscopic uh, standpoint where it's not just the cells, but there's also interstitial tissue called extracellular matrix. And that does direct these cells to grow into a way that the mouthfeel is different between various meat products. Mm-hmm. So we are not fully there in all types of textures. So we're experimenting with types of textures that are uh, significantly easier on the initial uh, version of the products. But our goal is to develop this texture or a scaffold where these cells will continue to grow very similar to how they do in an animal that's growing mm-hmm. and have a stru- structured matrix around it uh, called the uh, uh, extracellular matrix. So some of our efforts are really into developing the best type of extracellular matrix that these cells can grow on. And that's kind of where our, uh, one of our companies focuses on the innovation side. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Uma, where did this idea come from? It's pretty crazy. Where did it come from? <laughs> um, well, um, so I grew up, um, I grew up uh, in a meat-loving family. I grew up in India. My dad's a veterinarian. My mom, was uh, uh, she taught physics in college. As a child, I always loved to eat meat, but when I went to medical school, really, is when I got very interested in, in, in cell biology and subsequently became a cardiologist. And uh, as a cardiologist, I was uh, an inter- interventional cardiologist, so I had patients that had heart attacks or cardiac arrest that would come, and um, I was part of a study that was uh, trying to inject cells into patients' hearts to regrow heart muscle. And uh, that's kind of where I had the idea, how about we just grow food directly from cells? And wow. it would be much more efficient. An animal has to live for a year to two years before it can be harvested for meat. But if the cells could just be grown purely to be the highest quality food, then they don't have to worry about running around, nurturing their young ones or healing broken bones. All they have to care about is becoming the best quality food. And that seemed to be a you know, very big idea and kept pursuing it for the last eight years and kind of ended up meeting my co-founder, Nick, who is a farmer from Michigan and mm-hmm. also has been very interested in the same idea, got a lot of training in livestock skeletal muscle biology, and we teamed up for the company to be formed. Wow, it's a great, it's a great story. And so I, I guess what's interesting to me about this example, this is a, in some ways, it's a, it's a moonshot. It's a big societal goal. We don't know exactly who the customer is. We don't exactly know what the products are like. But we could all agree on the, on the top-level top society problem, but don't really know what the specific product might be. How, how, do you, how do you take that kind of goal as an entrepreneur and break it down into tangible milestones that can be financed and can be pursued in a commercial environment? Yeah, you know, that's, that is the biggest question that I kept asking myself for the last 10 years and tried to ask a number of people to start companies in this region. But, and that's the fundamental question that it came to. And what I decided is if I was not willing to take the risk, well settled in my career, uh, there would hardly be anybody else in the world who would want to do it. So one, I had to be very comfortable saying, this is realistic. I see the science there. Now we have to start putting it together into various forms of discovery and trying to prove to ourselves, our own team, that there is um, a realistic chance of making this happen 
and actually commercialize it. So we started with one step at a time, starting to say, well, let's just prove to ourselves that we can grow these cells in a very efficient way and project some of the uh, uh, effects at, high, at, at large scale. And we started doing that. And there's been a lot of literature in the last 10, 20 years in regenerative medicine or hypothesizing mm-hmm. how animal meat could be just produced from cells. And we started realizing there's a lot of um, expert commentary, but not all of it was really true. And once we started feeling that those discoveries were actually showing us ways that people hadn't predicted, or just that, frankly, would not happen, we started believing more and more in our idea. And once we started trying to go through the life cycle of getting the whole cell all the way to the fully formed muscle tissue, and then starting to formulate into products and tasting it, there were watershed moments all along this path for our Hmm. team. And the more people that started joining our team and watching this process and starting to see it and taste it, and also being validated by people like the early investors who joined us or the chefs who joined us, just became very clear to us that we had something that was very valuable that had to be pursued. And you know, everyone who's come to our company is just completely attached or in some way mesmerized by the possibilities here. And I think that's the glue that holds us together. Now, we haven't solved all the problems, but we feel like this is something that we are communicating very well by showing people what it looks like, what it tastes like. And I think we can do a lot of conversation intellectually, but people have to, this is food, it's very relatable on a day-to-day basis. They have to look at it, they have to touch it, feel it, taste it, smell it, and see their friends eating it. And we started breaking down every milestone in our company, keeping that in mind that, one, it has to look good, taste good, and has to be what they're used to. And we try our best to communicate that and we're matching that with just two things in our company. We are to lower cost and do it at scale. Mm-hmm. So having you some know, of these goalposts has really helped me personally, and I think also helped all our uh, team members. Yeah, I want to take you back to the to when you quit your job and decided this was what you were going to do. It's it's one thing for somebody to quit their job if they're working at Uber and they're going to start another another company in Silicon Valley, uh, it's a different thing to, to stop practicing medicine. So it's a pretty big commitment. What did you have to prove to yourself before you were willing to make that leap? Hmm. Um, well, I did want to prove to myself, number one, that it was an important problem to solve. And the more and more I started talking about this and um, uh, asking people, it was very clear that people would love to see change like this, but it had never been articulated in the past. I mean, almost all the change that we're seeing now is trying to have people eat something that tastes like meat or um, mm-hmm. maybe is made from plants. But I fundamentally uh, had to do research on it and say, I don't believe people are ready or anytime soon to become vegetarians or vegans. I mean, the global population is not ready for it. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of uh, was important for me. And the second part was started looking at the science and saying, are there scientific challenges that cannot be uh, surmounted? And I just could not convince myself, no matter how much I did on my own or talk to people, could not convince myself that there was a insurmountable scientific hurdle. And the last one was um, essentially if there is uh, any issue with perception of this product, because it is new, people have never mm-hmm. seen this before. But instead of convincing people to eat something else, like maybe eat plant-based meats, which is, again, we support them completely because it's good for the planet. 
and also good for many other uh, uh, reasons. I had to um, fundamentally ask the question, would people be ready to eat this? And the more and more I started talking to people, it was also clear that, yes, there is a percent of people that would eat it immediately. And that early adopter segment was significantly higher than what any new tech uh, or disruptive uh, technology would hope for. It was 20% plus. Wow. And at, and again, regionally, it's anywhere from 20 to 80%. And there's been enough surveys also being done on this in the last two, three years. Uh, it also became important for me to know that, well, people will be ready for this. And we have to communicate this opportunity well. And the last thing was, there is absolutely no transparency in the current meat production industry. I mean, I can't imagine people having tours of slaughterhouses as the demand grows to say, hey, this is how your meat is made. But I can definitely imagine people walking into a Memphis Meats plant and seeing how the entire production process happens just directly in front of them. Yeah. Uh, I think those were very convincing for me. And, and the last one finally is, I mean, I had phenomenal support from my, my family. And uh, if I didn't take this opportunity, I said I would regret this more than trying to continue on the path that I had as a cardiologist. And it was a very deeply personal decision. I mean, of course, it was scary, but I would regret if I didn't do this. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a very thoughtful response. Let, let Talk a little bit about, about the financing I, I just looked you up on Crunchbase, and sure. I don't know that these numbers are accurate, but it, it seemed like you are a pretty lean and efficient organization if you've really raised, it says, $3 million in three rounds. First of all, is that accurate? And, and if, if so, how, do, how have you been able to be so efficient? Uh, so, well, I, I, don't, I haven't looked at Crunchbase lately, but we've done one round okay. of uh, a, a little over $3 million. Okay. And uh, we've... Uh, have, a lot of this research and things that have been done have been built on work that people on our team have done in the past. Mm-hmm. So clearly, the $3 million was important for us to do proof of concept, prototypes, and start articulating a model that would scale up for the next round. So we are right now in the middle of uh, uh, doing our subsequent uh, equity raise, which will be a substantially larger number. And that's going to enable us to really be able to show a lot more products to the world. Yeah. Let me ask you a question about financing. There is certainly a criticism of the venture capital industry that they don't that no one really wants to fund moonshots, truly breakthrough. I mean, it's a famous, famous criticism of Peter Thiel, for instance. Um, And have you found that to be true? Have you found that? I mean, obviously, you found investors who are willing to support what you're doing. But how hard a problem was that? Um, I think the answer is yes or no. Yes, for majority of the uh, of the investors, uh, but moonshots are not that common, and therefore the the venture capitalists that are willing to support moonshots also are not that common. So it was very important for us to kind of screen through lots of people before we actually knew that the people that joined our early round and the ones that will be joining the subsequent round are really clear about the very high risk, high reward nature of this uh, opportunity. And uh, I would say 70% to 80% of the venture capital groups are not a great fit for what we're trying Mm -hmm. to do. But Mm -hmm. there is enough in the other 20, 30% that are incredibly excited and really want to see something like this work, not only from their, you know, economic calculations of risk reward, but also for the change they want to see. Uh, So there's a lot of alignment in, in mission 
that this is an inevitable future of food that's going to happen in the next 20, 30, 50 years or 100 years, and that they really want to be able to support that. All right. Well, Uma, we just have about half a minute, but give us just very quickly where you are and when we can expect to to, to be able to, to eat a Memphis meets hot dog. <laughs> okay. So we are formulating a number of products. So if you are an investor that's joining us, definitely you'll be able to taste it. Mm-hmm. Our goal is to put products on the market within five years uh, in grocery stores and you know, retail restaurants. When we enter the market, we'll have a price premium. But as we scale up, we expect it to be uh, uh, much more price efficient than conventional meats. So you could one day think about having a burger at uh, your famous uh, local fast food restaurant, but that is powered by Memphis Meats with the highest quality protein. All right, Uma, thanks so much for joining us. It was super Thank interesting. You, Paul. All right, for more information about Memphis Meats, you can just go to memphismeats.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.